0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Radical Candor podcast. I'm Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor and co-founder of Radical Candor, the company. I have to also mention my new book, Just Work, and the new company, Just Work.
1: And I'm Jason Rosoff, CEO and co-founder of Radical Candor.
2: And I'm Amy Sandler, your host for the Radical Candor podcast. And today we're going to be talking about bullying in remote working environments, The Workplace Bullying Institute describes workplace bullying as repeated mistreatment of an employee by one or more employees, abusive conduct that is threatening, humiliating, or intimidating, work sabotage, or verbal abuse. In their 2021 survey, they found that 43% of remote employees reported being bullied at work and with 50% of that bullying taking place in meetings. The rate for workplace bullying is highest for remote employees. So Kim, as the co-founder of two fully remote companies and as someone who just wrote your wonderful book, Just Work, and started a new company based on that book about identifying, recognizing, and eliminating workplace bias as well as prejudice and bullying, are these numbers surprising to you? It did surprise
0: me a little bit the extent to which bullying seems to be on the rise online. I would somehow in the at the beginning of quarantine, I would have expected it maybe to decrease. I, but maybe this is just the hopeless optimist in me. But I would have I would have hoped that things might be better. But the, but I guess it shouldn't have been surprising because we do notice that when, when people can talk anonymously, they are more likely to indulge their bullying tendencies. And that certainly happens in online meetings. And also, I, one thing I have noticed throughout my career and, and more so now is that one form of bullying that I write a lot about in Just Work is what I call bloviating bullshit. And I myself am guilty of indulging in bloviating bullshit from time to time. And this is basically someone who doesn't know more than anyone else in the room, but talks more than anyone else in the room. It certainly is easier even to do that in an online meeting than in an in-person meeting because it's harder to pick up the subtle signals that people send you uh, when you're in person to sort of pipe down.
2: So... When you talk about bloviating BS as an example of bullying, it might be helpful to actually get a definition of what we mean by bullying and specifically maybe comparing bullying to conflict. So Jason, I I think there was some work from a nonprofit that leads a bullying prevention center called PACER. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Jason, do you want to just walk through the difference between bullying and conflict and how that lands for you when you go through these these distinctions?
1: Sure. So PACER just uh, describes conflict, they have, they have three sort of separate definitions uh, dealing with slightly different circumstances. So the first, their definition, conflict, is disagreement in which both sides express their views, whereas bullying would be one person aims to hurt, harm, or humiliate another person. In another circumstance, conflict is can be had when no status difference exists between the people involved, whereas bullying occurs when Uh, the person bullying has more uh, in-group status than the person being bullied. And then the third circumstance, conflict is a person causing harm stops when they realize that their behavior is actually hurting someone else. Whereas a bullying scenario would be the person causing harm continues their behavior even after they've realized that they're hurting the other person. And I think that The reaction that I had to that was, it's sort of interesting that this definition relies on the sort of intent and awareness of the person who's causing the harm. In order for something to be bullying, the person must either be unaware that They must have the intent to hurt the other person or they must be aware that the behavior is hurting the other person in order for it to qualify as bullying. And I think that that is, in my experience, probably slightly too narrow of a definition to be useful in in a lot of circumstances because I think that the person being bullied doesn't know the difference between those two things, right? They don't know the difference between when the the person is aware and this is an intentional behavior or when they're unaware, Um, but the harm that's caused... Uh, is mostly the same. I think the harm does increase if you, as the person sort of at the other end of the behavior, you realize, oh, this person is very aware of the effect that they're having on me and they're continuing to do it. That does increase the harm, but it doesn't negate the harm that was caused when you were unsure whether or not the person was aware that their behavior was causing harm.
0: Yeah. So there are two things in this, in this pacer definition, which I like, actually, I used it in just work, but there are two things that I think probably narrow it too much. One is, as you said, the intention. Sometimes I would describe it not so much as an intention, but as like an instinct. And I know I have been <laughs> guilty of this at times. Like it, It's almost like a subconscious instinct uh, because I'm in the in-group and I can. These are moments not to be proud of. I'm ashamed of those moments, but We can't do right if we don't admit what we do. So the second thing is continuing their behavior. There are times when I feel that I have bullied someone, uh, and as soon as I realize what I've done, I'll stop, but I still would classify it as bullying. For example, I would say one of my earliest experiences with bloviating BS came when I was doing a model United Nations in high school. And I had done this for a few years running, and usually I was super well prepared at, to represent my country at the model United Nations. But my senior year in high school, I was, I was breaking up with my first boyfriend and I was applying to colleges. And so I had no time between these two activities to prepare. And so for the first time ever, I just got there and I listened and watched rather than jumping in to try to participate and I realized that most of the people who were doing most of the talking had no idea what anything about their countries or what they were talking about. They were really just taking pot shots at one another. They were really just insulting One another, and in kind of a bullying way, making fun of the name of somebody else's country, or you can imagine what it was like. It was high school. And so I realized oh, you know, in order for me to participate, I don't have to know a damn thing, I can just (laughs) spout off. This was a revelation for me. And I did this in part because the guy I had broken up with was there watching me, and I didn't want to show that I was hurting. And so I, I went in, both guns blazing. And then by the end of the day, I felt kind of ashamed of myself. I felt kind of gross. And I went home, and I, I remember I was taking a shower, and my mother came pounding on the, on the bathroom door and said, Kim, you won the Best Delegate Award, which I had never won. You know, <laughs> I, this was, I, I thought, gosh, I hope this is not, the way the world works. And of course, it was an important lesson to me. Uh, You know, I'd like to think I immediately knew that I never wanted to behave that way again. I think I probably indulged in some bloviating BS until I became a leader and realized how damaging this was to a team's efforts. And then I really had
2: to learn how to, to shut it down. It's a really powerful story. And I think what's implicit in that is that we would like to live in a world that rewards another kind of behavior, but you were actually, (laughs) here's your trophy. Um, So when you look at that definition and we'll put it in the show notes from the pacer categories, one person aims to hurt, harm, or humiliate another. So that feels kind of the way you are describing your bloviating Yeah, I was just trying to insult
0: the other the other delegates. That was that was all I was doing. I, I wasn't making any intelligent policy recommendations.
2: So if someone is just going on and they're they're not necessarily intending to harm someone, but they're taking up more space. Maybe it's more that person bullying has more in group status. So it may be more about status than about intention to harm. What do you what do you all think? I think it's an instinct. I think the status offers a person with the
0: status an instinct to harm. So, what I mean by that is this I was, as I was writing Just Work, I spoke with Frank Yery, who was a vice president, now I'm going to forget, at some big bank. <laughs> Not that it doesn't matter. It does matter which, but I can't remember which big bank. But he was a senior leader there and he was also working on diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, issues. And he noticed the following thing happening over and over and over again in meetings. He said, you'd go into a meeting and very often the people who had who were most prepared and knew the most about the topic were the women in the room, but they were unable to get a word in edgewise because their colleagues who were men, and it was majority, vast majority of, of people in, in these meetings were usually men, would talk over them. And there was usually one or two people who were maybe long confidence and short information who spoke more than anyone else. And he said this was bad for these women's careers. And the reason these, these people did that is because they were rewarded for it. They, want, they got the best delegate trophy. <laughs> they, they were rewarded for it sort of in, in subtle ways and also it, you know they were seen as leaders and so they got promoted because they were charismatic. Invariably, if the women had behaved that way, they would have been punished for the same behavior. The solution to me to this problem is is not to make the world safe for women to also bloviate, but to like really tamp down the bloviation.
1: As something that you said, like, it was really not sitting quite well with me, which is like the sort of subconscious or instinct level... And what in the situation you just described, I do agree that it, that it is subconscious, but it isn't instinctual. It's learned behavior. Yes. Like we're rewarding people for doing this. So like if everyone time someone time someone behaves in this way, we give them a cookie. I think we can be mad at them for their lack of self-awareness, but we still have to like look in the mirror and say this part of this is like our, our continual reinforcement of this behavior. Like we keep rewarding it. So why would we expect people to do something different?
0: Yes, it's sort of uh, the management systems, the conversational systems if you will that we create do reward bullying. They just do. And then they allow they allow for bullying from people in the in-group and then they punish the same kind of behavior from people who are not in the in-group. And very often the people who are in the in-group this has become instinctive as you write the wrong word. It has become it's like unconscious bullying, almost. <laughs> they're not aware of what they're doing sometimes, and so other times they are aware, and, and that's a different problem.
1: I think this is like a, a good sort of mini example of systemic injustice. We yes. have injustice built into the way that we think about these conversations. And, you know, just to tap into us for a second, the psychology of in-group and out-group dynamics this is something that human beings are incredibly sensitized to, the sense of whether or not I am in the in-group or I am in the out-group. People can develop that sense Almost instantaneously, in any situation, whether or not you're in or you're out, and then you're looking to other people to see like what, is, how does the in group behave, and how does the out group behave? You tend to mimic or reinforce those things because of either our, there's very rarely the rebel who desires to be <laughs> associated with the out group, but most of the time people are mimicking the behaviors they see that would get them closer to being accepted by the in group, which in this case means someone who might be the the sort of target of bullying actually actually. actually perpetuating that same harm on somebody else when given the opportunity so that they can get a step closer to feeling like I actually belong here, like in this space. I mimic this behavior, even though I know that it feels terrible to be the target of it.
2: Well, and I think Kim had that lesson firsthand from from the debate, which she shared about. And, you know, it's really interesting when you talk about in-group versus out-group. Let's think about this in terms of where we are now in the virtual world. And as people consider sort of returning to work and maybe having hybrid environments where in-groups and out-groups might actually be those folks that are at the office, those folks that are are remote. There was an article in Marie Claire that shared about how people who hadn't been bullied in the office were now being bullied once they had gone remote by their manager. So I want to bring that in as well as this idea of just how is technology and how are these, this virtual space and seeing an increase of of bullying in the online space, where are we now and what do people need to start thinking about when we're moving into more of a, a back to work or hybrid work environment?
0: There are a number of issues to consider. One is which I one just popped into my mind as you were talking, Amy, which is that there's another form of bullying that's often not recognized as bullying, which is micromanagement. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of what we're seeing is people feeling surveilled at home, you know, and because they're working at home, you're you're, you're expected to, and because there's an a lot of increased uh, expectation that you're always on. I mean, that was already a problem before. The pandemic, and now it's even a bigger problem of of always on. The need to be always on is comes precisely at the time when we most need to be able to turn off. I think we're all carrying a cognitive load from the pandemic. I mean, I know right now I'm carrying a cognitive load because I'm wondering if the verdict has come down from the Chauvin uh, mm-hmm. case. I'm not fully present even in this conversation. I keep being tempted to reload the New York Times on my phone. And so I think that we're we're at this moment in history where we're afraid for our health. We are sort of horrified by the things that we're seeing happening in our society, which we should have been noticing for the past 400 years, but are becoming more evident now than ever before. And all of a sudden we're working literally 24-7. Our office is is in our bedrooms. And so that sort of increased surveillance from the boss and, and increased ability to micromanage is really taxing on
2: folks. The survey that we're talking about, this Workplace Bullying Institute survey, says that 4% of respondents actually admitted to engaging in bullying behavior. So that's already 6.6 million people, you know, that at least have some awareness of it, whether it's because they identify themselves as micromanagers or something kind of further further along. But Jason, do you think that number reflects is that something that we should feel optimistic that people are aware of it or you know going back to intention and awareness like where does an awareness of a behavior then start to translate into actual behavior change especially if the system is rigged to reinforce bullying there's another
1: thing that happened at the same time which is as many people made the shift for the first time to managing team members remotely managers were also placed under extreme scrutiny. And so there's a little bit of like cascading Mm -hmm. bullying going on here where managers feel like they're under extreme pressure to make sure that work is getting done and it's getting done to a similar level of quality as it was pre-pandemic. And so there's paranoia on the part of a lot of managers. Like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do my job in this new environment. And that is coupled with this incredible set of surveillance tools. And that to me is like accidental, but not accidental sort of merging of two types of like two forms of harm, the sort of classic micromanaging combined with the availability of surveillance technology means that you have an extremely toxic version of micromanagement, which has appeared during the pandemic. I remember very early days of the pandemic we actually had many people reaching out to us directly writing us stories and saying my boss is asking me to install the surveillance software on my computer that literally checks to see if I'm moving my mouse around or if I'm typing things into my computer and they're expecting me to like have this stuff installed how do I tell them like how harmful this is like the part of the definition of bullying here from the Pacer group around humiliation I think this is the underappreciated The humiliating nature of being surveilled, of of not being trusted, of being treated like you are trying to take advantage, that feeling I think has been pervasive for a lot of people who have moved remote for the first time. The message that they are getting is that you cannot be trusted and we are going to make sure that you do not feel trustworthy because we are going to surveil you, your manager is going to check in with you several times a day, is going to dictate exactly what work you're going to do. From my perspective, I think, at least from the people that I've talked to, who I know are very responsible people, that has been the biggest struggle is this feeling that the trust that existed to some degree when they were in person evaporated instantaneously when, when they moved remote. And I think this is a real thing for a lot of people to consider, especially folks who are thinking long-term hybrid environment, like work from home, work in the office environments, is like this question of, well, if you're going to do that, how do you make sure that the people in either of those situations can feel like fully productive and trusted members of your team?
0: And I think this question of trust is crucial. The Project Include has a wonderful report that I recommend everybody take a look at that we'll drop into the notes. There are two things that are striking. One is the one you were talking about, Jason, where employees are not trusted. They're being micromanaged. And instead of measuring, we <laughs> I mean, I thought everybody was on board with this. We should measure results, not activities. And yet now we're back to this sort of Taylorism, time and motion that has been demonstrated many, many times over not to work. And so one of the recommendations in that report is make sure that you are measuring output, not activity when you're managing folks. And that's good for everyone, but it's especially important for underrepresented people. And then the other thing that is really striking about this is the extent to which employees don't trust their employers to handle bullying and bias and prejudice and harassment, all of the things that happen when they get reported. And so the lack of trust goes both ways. And it's really toxic unless we can figure out how to break through and learn how to create environments in which people have some confidence that the right things will happen when they report problems. And that we have confidence that our work will be recognized and we're not going to be micromanaged. In in the course of doing a bunch of just work workshops, I have noticed that people who are underrepresented report more micromanaging than people who are not. Mm -hmm. And that is really important to recognize and try to understand. To
2: reiterate, because I think it is helpful and folks will want to hear some specific things that that we can do, just this idea of really being results focused and not activity focused both for yourself and also for leaders with metrics and also for bullying simply not to be tolerated, noting that underrepresented folks are feeling the impact of more micromanagement. I'm wondering what other recommendations do you have? I'm thinking specifically of the portrait that Jason painted of someone who's feeling stressed and like there's all these new surveillance tools and and for someone that is in an underrepresented group, what can that person do? What are some of the tools that they have to feel better protected? So I think
0: there's two ways to answer the question. First of all, what can their leadership do to earn their trust to know that there will be consequences for bullying? Because again, the thing about bullying is that it works. It works uh, for the bully, but it is very bad for the collective, for the team. It is a local maximum and a collective minimizer. And so I would argue like at a certain level, the whole reason we have leadership and management is to create consequences for bullying. Otherwise, we get, we wind up, you know, with the Leviathan. (laughs) The biggest bully wins and everybody else loses, including ultimately the biggest bully. So there are three consequences that leaders need to focus on creating when they notice bullying. The first is conversational consequences. One of the most important things I learned as a leader is how to shut down the person in the room who is taking up all the oxygen in a way that is not inter- that doesn't in turn bully that person, because often they're just doing what they've been rewarded for doing their whole life, not to cut them too much slack. That's one. And then you also need to create compensation consequences. When you rate people, if you give people ratings once a year, once a quarter, however often you do it, you need to make sure that your rating system takes into account a person's teamwork. And if a person is one of those folks who's achieving good results for their their own goals, but leaving a trail of harm in their wake, harming their colleagues' ability to do great work, that has got you can't just look at their results you've got to look at their the impact of their behavior on the whole team and you've got to ding their, their them if they're causing harm full stop you you can't give people a high rating if they indulge in bullying behavior and there need to be career consequences you cannot get promoted especially promoted to manager if you have a track record of bullying your peers and if, a, if you give a person feedback that their behavior needs to change and it doesn't change, eventually you have to fire them.
2: If we may quote Bob Sutton, I believe, is it the no assholes rule? Yes, the no asshole rule, one of the great management books of all time. Well, and, and have you seen camera Jason companies or organizations where you feel like you've really seen them put those kinds of metrics in place where they do not reward the brilliant performer who bullies to get success?
1: I haven't seen a, per- I have not seen a perfect version of this, but what I will say is what Kim is describing in the business world, there's this idea of the balanced scorecard for businesses, which, which takes a look at both the sort of directly produced results, as well as like externalities that your organization creates, as well as how you get the work done. And when you look at the organization success, you're, you're weighting those things against each other. One of the biggest challenges, even in organizations where people measure sort of bullying or or maybe let's say anti so I'll just call it antisocial behavior that doesn't necessarily impede an individual's ability to get great results but it impedes other people's ability to get results is that I think they weight them too lightly <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so when you actually look at the results of that thing, you see, oh, they were dinged over here and maybe they didn't get that promotion, but they're still in charge of some very important thing that's happening in the organization, even though they're not managing people. They're still driving that work. And that's in part like it feels like a necessity because often when you have person who is both effective and a bully, it's hard to figure out how to replace them. And on top of that, the psychological effects of bullying are working on the raider as well. (laughs) So like when you start to imagine like confronting the bully about their how their behavior is actually causing negative performance, I can say like as a person who has encountered this issue directly, it makes you nervous. You're like, I don't want to talk to this person about the fact that they're a bully. And so there's a self-reinforcing part of this until and unless you actually measure those externalities in some clear way, which is like you, until you can see the negative impact on performance that a person who's engaging in bullying behavior uh, has on the people that they work with, it's really hard to weight that strongly enough. And so the review mechanism is often too narrowly focused on that person and a very small number of people around them as opposed to combining that with let's say team engagement scores <laughs> when you look at the teams that this person works most closely with compared to the rest of the organization that might give you a fuller picture of the measure of what's going wrong but even then i think there's a lot of pressure from the point of view of the business to keep a bully in place and try to like minimize the damage as opposed to have the hard line stance that Kim was taking, which is bullying behavior is unacceptable. We're not, we're going to give this person feedback. We'll give them an opportunity to change their behavior. And if they don't, eventually they're going to get fired. And hopefully that eventually isn't many years later after they've done lots of harm to lots of people.
0: I think there's two companies where I've seen this work reasonably well. One, Atlassian, they actually named it. They said, we are no longer going to reward the brilliant jerk. Labeling, I have problems with, but I think having a shared vocab, everybody was like, yes, we all know what that behavior looks like. And the performance review system took measures to identify that kind of behavior and to create penalties for it because if there's not a consequence for bullying the nat- in the natural course of things there's a reward for it so they recognized that and i think it i think this was pretty effective there was also a company where i worked where they created a performance management system and and they looked at results teamwork and innovation if you got a bad rating on any of the three, you got a bad rating overall. So rather than mm. taking an average of the three, like couldn't do badly on any of the three or else you just got a bad rating overall. You sort of have to tilt things towards creating a consequence for bullying behavior. Otherwise, there won't be a consequence. And, you know, in, in this country, we, we I think, I, I believe, I'm going to state this, it's other people will disagree with me, but I think we had a bully in chief. Like, it works. We we see how this behavior works unless we really create negative consequences for it early on. So you asked another question, Amy, which is which I didn't answer because I want to talk about what leaders ought, ought to do. Because again, all the burden of solving these problems should not be on the shoulders of the person harmed. But if you're a person who's being harmed by bullying. And you don't know how to respond. What can you say or do in the moment? Because you can't necessarily create consequences for that person. And it's a, a terrible feeling to be harmed by bullying. Mm-hmm. Uh, So I want to give folks something they can do or say that leaves them with a sense of agency because you may be working in an organization where the leaders are not creating consequences. You probably are Mm -hmm. in fact. So one of the things I learned this from my daughter, she was, she was getting bullied in third grade and I was telling her to use kind of the I statement. When you do this, I feel sad. And Margaret banged her fist on the table and she said, mom, he is trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell him he succeeded? And I thought, oh, my gosh, <laughs> from the mouth of babe, she's right. You shouldn't. That's not going to do any good. Because, again, this goes back to that PACER definition. When the person realizes that their behavior is causing harm, they're going to keep doing it or maybe even double down. And so an I statement is, is a great way to respond to bias, because an i statement invites someone in to understand things from your perspective but bullying requires a you statement you can't talk to me that way or if that feels too hostile uh, or even if you have let's talk about how to care personally uh, about someone who's bullying you in a second but you could you could ask a question a you question what's going on for you here Because sometimes the person is not aware that they're bullying, but the point is you want to put the spotlight on the other person. You want to be on your front foot. You don't want to be on your back foot. You don't want to be inviting the person in. You want to be pushing the person away with your use statement. Uh, There's a great article in, in the Times written by a dominatrix who knows a lot about dealing with bullies, I would say. The idea of the you statement was was something I, uh, not only learned from my daughter but also from this dominatrix. So we'll drop that into the into the show notes.
2: And speaking of the you statement, to Jason's example of the kind of cascading bullying, where the managers themselves are feeling they're being bullied and then they're bullying someone else, if I am speaking to my to my manager, would the what's going on for you here? Are, would you recommend a you statement as a question, or is there is there a specific way to phrase that if the person that's bullying is in fact your manager has power over you
1: what what do you think jason my perspective is when i see it depends on like if this behavior is in character for that person meaning if this is how like if this is typical for them i think i would be doing very different calculus than if it feels like this is something new if you're encountering this for the first time as you've gone remote or something has changed in the job and the person's reacting differently i think that question like what's what's going on for you this this doesn't something that feels like something has changed in our relationship, I don't understand why you're mm-hmm. treating me this way, I think can be really helpful. Because one of the things that happens when we're under a lot of stress is we lose some of our self awareness, we lose some of our ability to actually evaluate our own behavior effectively. And having someone hold up a mirror, especially someone that we've had a reasonably good relationship with up until that point can be really, really useful. I do think it's still helpful to be to be curious, but maybe to be more specifically curious, for example, if someone tells you, you need to report your work to me four times a day, you need to tell me like four times a day, I want you to check in and tell me what you've done in the last two hours. Like the question that I would have is, why is this important? <laughs> like, why do you feel like it is important for me to check in with you every couple of hours? Because or that, even at least, don't
0: you trust me?
1: Yeah or yeah exactly like I feel like I have I have been trustworthy this makes it feel like you you don't trust me there's a bit of a forced response there right like putting the person in a position of defending themselves and I think that that is is somewhat useful but at the same time if the response that you get is either noncommittal or is in fact no I do not trust you I think your like your options are somewhat limited. But the big benefit you have at that point is you have data. I think one of the hardest parts of like encountering a bully, especially if you're unsure what's going on, is you don't know if it's intentional. You don't know if it's the result of something else that's going. You don't know how to react to it. And so showing some level of curiosity, I think, gives you some information which allows you to make better decisions about how to behave in the future if we're incurious about it, if we accept what's going on, you know, begrudgingly, or if we feel like we don't have any agency to act, I think we have very little chance of making things better.
2: So Kim, does Jason's curiosity address the need to care personally for the person doing the bullying? Or is there something else that we can do to do what seems like a very unnatural act?
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that has helped me is to understand the extent to which power corrupts and and power, uh, if you have even just a little bit of power, you're more likely to behave in a bullying manner. I've certainly seen this in myself. In Just Work, I tell a story about a time where a woman on my team felt bullied by a guy on another team. And the guy on the other team was considerably junior to me in the organization. And it was late It was late on a Friday night and I didn't want to be there anyway. And I was grouchy. So it was a combination of stress and power. And man, I called that poor guy up and I just, I yelled at him and humiliated him. And believe me, I wanted to do it. Like I felt so Mm -hmm. good when I hung up the phone. And these things always come back to bite you. Like fast forward five years, this guy is working with my husband and, and he finds out that I am my husband's wife. And he said, you are married to Kim Scott. <laughs> like, my husband came home and he said, what did you do to that guy? <laughs> uh, like he was sort of horrified. And I, I remember, I, like I vividly remember. the. So I think one of the things you can do is, is hold, hold up a mirror. Because I, if this guy had said to me, why are you talking to me like this? I hope I would have backed down and said I was sorry. And so very often, a a book that I read recently, is called Driven to Distraction. And it's about people with ADHD, and how they are often accused of bullying others or being assholes or whatever. And as I read the book, it really made me think, it made me realize my father perhaps had ADHD, because I I love my father died recently, and I want to take a moment to say how much I love him, how dearly I love him. But it was really, I realized that I I wish I had read this book when I was a kid because it would have helped me deal with behavior that that I found to be bullying that I think he was really, he did not quite intend. That's what I meant when I said the unintentional. That's what I was thinking of, Jason, earlier when I said the unintentional. Mm -hmm. So so I think realizing that sometimes, I mean, sometimes this person really does intend to be an asshole and, and, and to bully you, and but whether they intend it or not intend it, sort of just pushing back with a question that puts the spotlight on them, it can be useful.
2: Well, thank you for sharing and acknowledging um, your dad. And I think why that's so meaningful, I think it's Hallowell, if I'm not mistaken, for the Driven to Distraction book. But why that's so helpful is part of why we share our own stories is realizing when we have done the very same thing that we judge in other people. So it really helps us develop that that self-compassion, which then enables us to have a little more space to understand where it might be coming from, from the other person. And then looking, especially in the relationships we have that mean the most to us and think it just expands our, our empathy all that bit more. One last question for you, Kim, which is that you have been sharing just work the book and working uh, spreading the message with Trier Bryant around uh, how how people can implement just work in their organizations I'm really curious you mentioned about how folks who are underrepresented are feeling you know larger percentages of micromanagement. Is there anything else that you're hearing or sensing from these talks and workshops that you're you're leading right now be really interesting to hear
0: yeah, I'll share. I'll share a story about an incident that so, someone shared with us. So, a woman has started this company that that helps people understand how to build a how to build a particular kind of business. So, consulting firm. She's meeting over Zoom repeatedly with two people from two women from the company, and the project is kind of going off the rails a little bit. She talks to the CEO about it, and then in their next meeting, this man from the company is in the meeting. And the two women are wearing, the, the, the three people from the other company are in person, and the two women are wearing masks, and the man is not wearing a mask. So she's sort of immediately uncomfortable, my friend who's over Zoom. And then, and also this guy has a role at the company that has nothing to do with it. Like, she can't even understand why he's there. And so she asks him why, and she wasn't expecting him to be there. So he, she asked, and his response was, well, the CEO asked me to help the girls out. Now she's really, uh, and these are, you know, everybody's 40 years old. Nobody nobody in this room is a child. And uh, and so she's angry, and, and she's not sure how to, inter- like, is this bias? Is it prejudice? Is it bullying? And then she says, and don't you think you should be wearing a mask? And he kind of grouses. He reaches down, and he puts on a blue lives matter mask. And her question to me was, I don't even know how to categorize what he was doing. Was was this a belief? Was it bullying? Like how do I respond? And these are the kinds of things that people feel more comfortable doing when they are when they're not in person. And so I people who Maybe wouldn't be so aggressive. I, I would characterize what he did as bullying, but you know, I could be wrong. I don't know this person, and and she she was so sort of taken aback. She she didn't you know so she didn't get more clues. But that's all we know. But I think that kind of behavior is more is seems to be more likely to happen sort of online. Another another example of how technology has created really terrible bullying happened. A, a, a woman was, uh, a black woman I, I, we work with, was giving uh, a talk to her company after, after George Floyd's murder and really said, I'm taking off my professional hat and I just want to talk to you about what it's like to be a black woman in America in this time. And there was one of those uh, sort of, a, a, where people could drop in comments And someone typed in anonymously, can we move on now? Which I would describe as bullying. And it it got much worse because nobody, there were no upstanders in the room. Nobody, the CEO, who should have stood up and said, this is not acceptable, didn't say anything. Nobody said anything. And so it wasn't only that one person. It was the whole environment. So I think... Another thing that I would say is it's really important for leaders, but also equally as important for observers to become upstanders uh, in, in in these times.
2: Kim and Jason, I'm curious where you land on this. Would it be accurate to say, just like we say with radical candor is measured not at the speaker's mouth but at the listener's ear, this a similar version with bullying? Again, this goes to maybe less about intention and more about the impact. So yes, if somebody so one person that the mask thing might not have felt like bullying, but for someone else it did. And so I'm just curious, is this also a relational thing or are there some things that are purely hundred percent bullying? you know, is there is there a strict definition on that?
1: Is, is there a pure form? Uh, <laughs> in, in my experience, there is a type of behavior, which is so clearly designed to inflict harm on other people that whether it was the direct intention of the person who is, who is doing, you know what I'm saying? Like mocking, uh, for example, mocking the, a, a person's accent or something like that, whether the intention was to cause harm. Like the idea of doing that is so clearly like the the end result is for one person to laugh and for the other person to feel ashamed. That it's hard for me to imagine that there's a version of that that bu- that isn't bullying at its core isn't isn't a, is a form of bullying. I think anytime you are reinforcing uh, like behavior reinforces for the purposes of intimidation or humiliation, the differences between people like.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That that is going to be it's going to be bullying. And and I think there's a there's an interesting sort of power dynamic because there's a you know, in some cases, an underrepresented person might preemptively bully someone in the in group to make themselves feel a bit more powerful. But again, like at the core, that behavior is designed to like inflict harm, shame or intimidate the other person. So I don't know. To me, it feels like there are some things which no matter how you slice them, always kind of feel like bullying, regardless of of the intent. And so the impact measurement feels more important to me from a definitional perspective than the intent.
2: I agree. It's results matter, not
1: intentions.
2: All right. And with that, it's time for our radical candor checklist, which are tips you can use to start putting radical candor into practice immediately.
0: So if you are being bullied, try confronting it with a you statement that shows a person that there will be negative consequences for your behavior. Or even if you can't create negative consequences, they have to answer your question. The consequence doesn't have to be super intense. Sometimes just asking a person a question that it's hard for them to answer, just that they have to answer is enough. What's going on for you here? Or you can't talk to me that way.
2: Number two, if you're behaving in a bullying way or perhaps micromanaging your team, we encourage you to take a step back, stop talking and start listening to problems, asking the relevant questions and then collaboratively brainstorming solutions. Your goal, especially as a leader, is to focus on removing obstacles and diffusing explosive situations. And again, your biggest tool here will be curiosity. So replace blame defensiveness, judgment, with, with really getting curious, more information will only make you a better manager.
1: And then last but not least, most important is to recognize the role that power plays in bullying. As individuals with power, we're more, even a small amount of power it makes us more likely to engage in bullying behavior. And as organizations, the reflecting the idea that we need to systemically punish, systemically create consequences for bullying, especially as it relates to relationships with power dynamics.
2: We'll be putting some anti-bullying resources in the show notes, which you can access at radicalcandor.com slash podcast. And don't forget to buy Kim's new book, Just Work, Get Shit Done Fast and Fair. It's available Everywhere books are sold, you can visit justworktogether.com and learn more about how you can stop workplace injustice. Thanks for joining us. Our podcast features Radical Candor co-founders Kim Scott and Jason Rosoff is produced by our director of content, Brandy Neal, and hosted by me, Amy Sandler. Music is by Cliff Goldmacher. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter at Candor and find us online at radicalcandor.com.